Open your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, near the end of the Old Testament, there are 12 relatively short books that close out the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Obadiah. I'm sure it's one of the more tattered pages of your Bible, as you've probably spent a lot of time there in your personal devotions and private Bible study. I'm, I'm going to guess you've all memorized a lot of verses out of Obadiah and are really really familiar with it, but, but nevertheless, if you have trouble finding it, there it is. Obadiah is the shortest book of the Old Testament and one of the shortest of the entire Bible. Uh, it is one of the few Old Testament books that is not quoted at all in the New Testament. So if we are unfamiliar with Obadiah, well, that may have something to do with the fact that it just it wasn't a book that was relied heavily upon even in, for the New Testament writers. In fact, most scholars agree that, the, that Revelation 11.15 is the only place in the New Testament that even refers to Obadiah. It doesn't quote it, but it seems to reference the very last verse of the book of Obadiah. So it is a rather obscure book. And it is the first we're going to consider in our mini-series here on the Minor Prophets. Minor Prophets are not minor because of their message or because of their, their, their amount to which they were inspired. They weren't less inspired than the other writers, but rather because of their brevity. Uh, in fact, if you take all 12 of the Minor Prophets together, they are shorter than the book of Isaiah by itself. And they were gathered as one scroll. In fact, Hebrew scholars refer to them as the Book of the Twelve, or the Scroll of the Twelve. And that is the Minor Prophets. We are going to consider them in what, we, what I believe to be their chronological order. I think that will help us see some of the evolution of the message throughout the centuries. But Obadiah, we're not 100% certain when he wrote, but I think he was the first of the writing prophets altogether. And so we're considering him first this morning. So despite the obscurity, despite the brevity, nevertheless, the book of Obadiah is here. It's preserved. It's part of our scripture. And so there are a couple of ways we could look at this. We could say, well, let's just put our heads down, gut it out, get through it, and look for something better next week. You know, just check it off the list. We're good Christians, so we're going to consider the whole counsel of God. So we're just going to check this one off and probably never again in our lives have to consider the book of Obadiah. But I think that is a, a, a wrong way to look at it. I think rather we can see a great message of hope and of encouragement here in the book of Obadiah, a, a word that will be meaningful to us, especially with all that we are facing in our world right now. So I encourage you now to, to turn to Obadiah and to follow along as I read. And as I get ready to read, I'll remind you, as I often do, that here at the Short Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means, in part, that if you want to know how to think about all where your God fits into this world, how to think about where your God belongs in the pantheon of all the religions of the world, then you must know his word, and we can gain some understanding this morning from the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah, I'm going to read the entire, all 21 verses of the book. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. 
The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live among the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And the day that you stood along, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For you have drunk on my holy mountain. So all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they, and sorry, it shall be as though they never had been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them. And consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in. Uh, uh, Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount uh, Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray and seek his leading and understanding it. Spirit of God, we do ask that you would reveal to us the message of Obadiah. Let us hear at least a portion of what he has to say to us this morning. And in hearing it, let us be encouraged and made hopeful and made aware of all that we have in you who is Lord over all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> if you've ever tried to confront anyone with questions of uh, uh, 
faith, of the question of religion, of, of discussions over uh, uh, the eternal things, the big things, you may have been met with a response along this line. That's fine for you, but it's not what I believe. And in this culture we live in today, that is meant to shut down the discussion. That's supposed to be the end of it. It's okay for you to think what you want to think, but I'm going to think what I want to think, and we really shouldn't be debating this or hashing it out. In fact, uh, in today's culture, especially in America, you're supposed to just let everybody think whatever they want to think. Let them have the religion they want to have. Let them have the belief scheme that they want to believe, but certainly do not require that they would actually respond or submit to any absolute overarching truth. I have my God, you have your God, she has her God, he has his God, and everyone is okay to proceed in that way. This small view of gods, this small view of religion, is akin to what we see in the book of Obadiah. In Obadiah's day, it wasn't so much that each individual had their own view of God or of religion, but rather that each nation had its own view of God and of religion. So that every country had its gods, who were seen to be parochial, to be regional, to be over that area. Just as later the Greeks would develop gods that were only over certain aspects of life, the god of war, the god of love, the god of the harvest, etc. So this culture in which Obadiah existed saw gods as being geographically limited, geopolitically limited. There are the gods of the Assyrians, or the gods of, of, of the Ninevites, or the gods of Babylon, or the gods of Israel. Much like we today think each person has their own right and own claim to, to how they view deity, how they think about religion, so in that day there were these agreements of individualized, localized views of deity. And Obadiah speaks into that culture. He speaks into that mindset and he brings an important message for the people of God. And so we're going to look at three aspects of Obadiah this morning, three parts to the sermon anyway. We're going to look, first of all, at Obadiah's meaning. Just what's going on? Who is Edom? What, what, what's this day of the distress of Judah? What are the events that it's talking about? Let's just understand the literal, technical application of these things. And having looked at its meaning, we're then going to consider Obadiah's message back then. What doctrine or instruction did Obadiah have for the people of his day? And having considered what the words actually mean, and having considered the message for the people back then, we're then going to ask ourselves, what does it mean today? What is the message of the book of Obadiah for God's people today? So first of all, Obadiah's meaning. What is going on in this text? And in the outline, in the, on the insert there, on the back of the insert, I have uh, uh, framed up a few questions that we ought to ask and answer to help us understand Obadiah's meaning. So we're going to begin with this question of who is Edom. Edom is prominent in the book of Obadiah. We see it right there in verse uh, uh, 2. I'm sorry, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. This is a message about Edom. 
So if you have the map out there, you'll see Edom was a, a, a land to the south and east of Judah and Israel, what would be modern-day Jordan. It is a, a, a mostly arid and rocky and rugged landscape, very mountainous. Um, the terrain is harsh. Living there is hard. But once you live there, if you can dig in and establish yourself there, it's also equally hard to, to dispossess you, to kick you out. It's hard to live there, but it's hard to conquer there also. It's easy to defend. Um, to give you some sense of what Edom was like, many of you may be familiar with one small place in Edom. If you've ever seen the pictures of the city of Petra, Jordan, particularly the treasury building. Now, you may not know the name of it, but you've probably maybe seen those pictures of this, of this uh, uh, face of this building carved into the side of a cliff. Okay, and, you, and there's pillars and there's these columns and these windows and this big doorway carved right into the side of the rock. That's Petra, Jordan. That's the treasury building from Petra, Jordan. Petra means rock. And this is in that, that, well, this would be part of ancient Edom. Now, that building was built sometime in the first century B.C., so a few hundred years after Obadiah. But it gives you a sense of the, of the terrain and, and the, the rockiness and the ruggedness of it. If you're still having a hard time picturing the city and you remember the movie from the... Uh, was it late 80s, I guess it was, early 90s, uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Right at the end when they're riding away, Sean Connery and Harrison Ford, they're riding away. That, in the backdrop, that's Petra, Jordan, that rocky city behind them there. So Edom was this rugged, rocky place in the desert, and the people who lived there were Edomites. They were descendants of Esau. They were the descendants of Esau. Now, quick reminder of, uh, of what happened uh, who Esau is and what's going on back then. Uh, uh, Esau was the older twin brother of Jacob. And you see in the text, we saw both Esau and Jacob referenced. And so here we are hundreds of years after Esau and Jacob, and we're considering the descendants of Esau and Jacob. And it's for this reason that we see Esau referenced in verses 6, 8, 9, 18, 19, and 21. Those are just references to the ancestor of the Edomite people. A little more trivia with regard to who the Edomites were and, and who is this nation of Edom. And this is kind of nice because it ties back into the sermon series in Acts that we just concluded a couple of weeks ago. The last known Edomite was Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was the man in Acts chapter 26 who presided at Paul's, at the last recorded trial for the Apostle Paul. That man was an Edomite. And he died with no heirs. And with his death, known Edomites vanished from history. That's not unimportant. That turns out to be rather consequential in light of what we're going to consider here in Obadiah. So the Edomites lived in that, that rugged desert region to the south and east of Judah and Israel. They were the descendants of Esau, and uh, uh, they ceased to exist with Herod Agrippa. So the next question we have to ask to understand the, the text of Obadiah, what was Edom's sin for which God is condemning them? We see here that God warns that he's going to condemn, he's going to judge Edom because of their sin. What was that sin? Well, certainly there is an aspect of the sin that involves pride. They, they, they hide out in the clefts of the rock, they make their, their homes 
the high sides of the mountains and they live up there and believe you can't come and get us. But I don't think that really is the essence. That's a, a, a symptom of their sin, but I'm not sure it's the essence of their sin. Flip over, if you would, to Genesis 25. Genesis 25, stick you know, a finger or something in Obadiah. But go to Genesis 25, and we'll look at verses 21, 22, and 23. Genesis 25, 21, 22, and 23. <clears throat> so, uh, there we go. Um, Starting in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. Keep that in the back of our head and go back now to the book of Obadiah. When the ancestors of Israel and Judah, on on the one hand, Jacob, and the ancestor of Edom, on the other hand, Esau, when they were still in the womb of their mother, God in his providence declared a particular order with which they should be related to each other. And he upset the normal or natural order of things. Rather than the older brother taking precedence in the family hierarchy, the younger would do so. And the older would serve the younger. And one of the things we've got to recognize in the storyline of Edom, as it relates to the people of God, is their failure to accept this decision from God. Throughout the rest of their history, they would fight this. And if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you'll be familiar with the, the, the back and forth the, 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 between Esau and Jacob, these two men. How Esau constantly was trying to subdue his brother Jacob. I don't know if Rebekah ever shared this prophecy with the boys. Whether or not she did, there was definitely between them an an unwillingness to accept. Esau could not accept that God had ordained Jacob as the the son of honor, the the conduit for the Messiah. We see then in, in Numbers chapter 20... The people are, have left Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness. They come to the border of Edom in Numbers chapter 20. And Moses sends an envoy to the king of Edom and says, Can we pass through Edom on our way to our promised land? Now, there was a major highway that went through Edom called the King's Highway. It was a, a, a significant trading route in the ancient world. And it was a primary source of income for the Edomites. You would pay a toll to pass safely along the king's highway. And of course, the the trade routes, they would stop and trade there in Edom, and they would would stay and and, and spend some of their money there in Edom, and so it was a source of income for the Edomites. And Moses says to the king of Edom, listen, we will stay on the king's highway. 
yeah, it seems like we're a lot of people and we got all of our goats and our sheep and everything else out here. And it seems like we're going to be totally chaotic, but we promise to stay on the highway. And we won't even drink water out of your wells. Our God has provided everything we need. He will continue to do so while we're in your land. You won't even know we were there. And the king of Edom tells Moses, no, if you come in, we're going to attack you. And, eat, and forces Israel to walk out and around Edom and take the long way around. Then we see here that, that there's a description in verses uh, uh, 10 and 11 in, in Obadiah. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, Edom, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. We're not exactly sure. There's a number of times when Jerusalem was invaded by strangers. We're not 100% certain which one this is. Some have said it's the, the Babylonian invasion that comes in 605 and, uh, uh, and again in 587. I lean toward an invasion of Jerusalem in, in uh, 845-ish BC. But either way, what we have here is a picture of once again the Edomites not taking care of their fraternal relatives, their fraternal neighbors in Israel and Judah. So we have an ongoing pattern of the Edomites from the day of Esau down to the day of Obadiah, even to what we saw the way Herod treated Jesus. We have this pattern of them refusing, rejecting God's providential choice that Jacob would be the one through whom the Messiah came. Jacob would be the, the conduit of God's blessing for the world. And right there is a lesson we, we've got to learn. We may not be thrilled with the, the place where God has put us. We may wish for a, a more starring role, a more, a more uh, uh, prominent place in Providence's plan. But fighting against Providence's plan doesn't bring the glory we want. It doesn't bring the, the attention that we desire. It brings destruction. Edom failed to accept the plan of providence. So the, the Edom is this country descended from Esau. Their sin is that of rejecting providence's plan for them and of them opposing providence's plan for their na- neighbor, Judah and Israel. And then finally, the punishment. What do we see in verse 16? You shall be as, you shall be as though you never had been. It's going to be like Edom didn't even exist. Has that come to to, to pass? It has. Would our understanding of the world today make any difference at all? If Edom had never existed, it really wouldn't. I'm going to guess that your studies of world history, even if you were a history major in college, didn't care much about what happened in Edom. It's as if they never existed. Verse 18, there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. As I mentioned earlier, Herod Agrippa is the last known Edomite. They're gone from the face of the earth. Verse 20, the exiles of Jerusalem shall possess the cities of the Negev. Now that has not quite been fulfilled to the same degree. That's something we still await. And verse 21, the kingdom of Esau shall be the Lord's. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. Edom's punishment 
was utter destruction, being utterly wiped off the face of the earth. So what is the message of Obadiah? If that's the meaning of the text, if that gives us a sense of the players, who the Edomites are, where they were located, why they, what sin they had committed, what punishment was pronounced against them, if we now have an understanding of the text of Obadiah, what is the message of Obadiah? And I'm going to suggest that we have to start by asking a key question. I think we need to ask this key question. Why? Did you note the, 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 the wording there? Go back to verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now, is Obadiah a, a prophet who lives in Edom? He's not. This is a prophet who lived in, I think, Israel. Um, I think this is the same guy that's a contemporary of Elijah in 2 Kings. Did Obadiah live in Edom? He did not. Was his message given to Edom? As far as we know, it was not. That's bizarre. A message concerning Edom, but given to God's people in Israel and Judah. So the question we have to ask is this. Why? Why is a prophecy about Edom given to Israel and Judah? Why is a prophecy about Edom given to Israel and Judah? And if we answer that question, I think we will understand the message of Obadiah for God's people back then. And I think the answer is simply this. That what we find here, the, the, the warning to, Ob- to Edom through Obadiah, is both a warning to the people of God, an encouragement to the people of God, and hope for the people of God. The, the, the message of Obadiah to Edom is a warning to the people of God. This is under the implications there. A warning to the people of God. The, it's an encouragement to the people of God, and it is hope for the people of God. What's the warning? We see here the warning is this. This is what God is going to do to Edom for their sin. Did God have a covenant relationship with Edom? He didn't. Did God's prophets regularly preach on the streets of Edom? They didn't. Was God's house where he met with people in Edom? It wasn't. They had none of the benefits of the covenant people of God, and yet... Nevertheless, they are accountable for their sin. How much more is Israel and Judah accountable? How much more are the people of God going to be held accountable for their sin? When they have all the benefits of the prophets, of the priest, of the temple, of the king, of the Davidic dynasty. How much more are they going to be held accountable? There is a warning for the ancient people of God at the time of Obadiah. But there is encouragement. I mentioned the parochial view of God back then, how they saw gods as being geopolitically bound to particular regions or people groups, to the point that most nations back then, as you walked along a major highway, like I mentioned the King's Highway earlier, when you came to a new country, a new territory, there would be these, these uh, 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 
figurines, these large figures, almost like maybe a totem pole you might think of today, these large figures of all of their gods or their main god. So that when you entered their land, you would know who their god was. This is the god that has control in this area. And what was happening in Israel and in Judah was that parochial view of God, that small view of God, I have my God, you have your God, was creeping in to the people of the one true God. And in the book of Obadiah, Yahweh comes to his people and says, I am God over Edom. I have authority in Edom. They're accountable to me. They have to answer to me. I will issue punishment over Edom, and the gods of the Edomites are not going to save them. But that's great encouragement to the people of God. For whatever is going on, when you're Israel, when you're Judah, when you're feeling small in the world, when all the world powers around you are building up their strength, when the, when the Assyrians are, are building their kingdom, when the Babylonians are building, when they're all fighting over you, you can begin to go, our God is small, unable to save us. But this was encouragement. I am God even over Edom. And it was hope. You see in verse 19 the hope we find at the close of the book of Obadiah. Look at verse 19. Those of the Negeb, you know, the people of Judah, shall possess Mount Esau and possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Now, those last few places were part of the promised land, but those first few go outside the promised land. And what's being said here is, listen, you, my people, will one day have all the earth. You will possess all of it. And then in verse 21, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom of Esau, the kingdom of Edom, shall be the Lord, shall be Yahweh's. So there is encouragement in the moment you feel small, Israel, Judah, on the world's political stage. But I am the God over all the nations. But there's also hope for the future. And as God of all the nations, I will one day give you possession of the lands of your enemies. The message of Obadiah to the people of his day was a warning If the Edomites are accountable, how much more so are we? But it was encouragement. No matter what's going on, our God's in control. And it was hope. One day, God will conquer all of our enemies. It's the reason we read from the the Catechism. How does uh, uh, does Jesus execute the office of a king? He conquers all ours and his enemies. So now we have to ask, then, what is the message for us today? And I don't think it's a big stretch to see what it is. We do the key question, I think, to ask is this. Why was Obadiah preserved? Of all the things from the ancient world that could have been kept, why did God keep Obadiah? Why did the Holy Spirit decide to hang on to this book, 
for us. I mean, let's be honest. Wouldn't you rather know more about the ministry of Nathan in the court of David? Wouldn't that be a little more interesting from the ancient? If you're going to talk about stuff from ancient Israel, I'd like to know more about how Nathan ministered to David. I wouldn't mind knowing some more of the stories of Samuel and his childhood. How about we, how about we don't have more of the, 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 the uh, sermons of Elisha preserved? Why did the Holy Spirit preserve Obadiah? Well, we're reminded, the answer is simply this, it's because it's for us. Why is it preserved? Because it's for us. Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Really, Paul? Even Obadiah? Yes. Even Obadiah was preserved, was written, so that we might have instruction. So that we might have encouragement and hope. And the implications are for us what they were for the people back then. There is in Obadiah a warning. If our God is God over all, if one day Muslims are going to have to confess that Jesus is Lord, if someday Buddhists are going to have to admit that there is but one God, how much more accountable are you and I who have that knowledge? There is a warning here for us, but the warning is not the main message. There is great encouragement here for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or COVID or unemployment or liberal politicians or egomaniacal former politicians? None of them can separate us from the love of Christ. He is Lord of all. He is God over all. Not just the God of Christians, but the God of all the nations. Did you catch what was happening in our New Testament reading? Where there in Philippians 2, Paul makes this argument, listen, because Jesus obeyed, because of his obedience, because of his faithfulness to God, his Father, He's been given the name that is above every name. You say, well, what's the name above every name? And Paul begins to fill it in. For at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is, now what's the name he's given? Lord. He is Lord of all, to the glory of God the Father. Now, we can lose a little bit of the meaning of that word Lord, because of the, some of the, the, the things that has gone through in history, but we have to recognize this. Look at the beginning of the book of Obadiah, and we'll find that word, Lord. In my, in my translation, in, uh, we have, thus says the Lord God. And I have Lord with lowercase o-r-d, and God in all caps. And when you see a name of God in your Old Testament in all caps, that usually means the proper name of God. The name given at the burning bush to Moses. The Hebrew here is is Adonai Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh. Adonai, master, lord, boss, one in charge. Yahweh is the proper name of God. 
what we have here is saying God is Lord. He is the one in charge. Yahweh is in charge. Now, over the centuries, the Jews, concerned about the misuse of the name of the Lord your God, uh, uh, concerned uh, about the uh, implications of the third commandment, do not misuse the name of Yahweh your God, begin to not use the name of Yahweh. And they begin to substitute Adonai in its place, Lord. Which is why we see Lord in the Old Testament, in all caps. And that came into the New Testament. That came into the period of Jesus and the New Testament writers. And in Greek became uh, uh, Kyrios, Lord. But these are Jewish thinkers and writers. In their mind, when they hear Lord, when they hear Kyrios, they don't just think of any boss, of any governor, of anyone in charge. This is the name of the Almighty. So the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that he is Yahweh. He's God. The one true God over all. You know, the big idea of the book of Obadiah is simply this. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, Obadiah didn't necessarily know all the details of Jesus of Nazareth and his birth and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, but he saw that there was one true God who was God over all the nations. And then the New Testament comes along and says, by the way, that's Jesus. And we're going to call him Yahweh someday. And we are going to, everyone is going to kneel before him. In our discussions with our fellow man, it is not okay that they have their God and you have your God. Do not let that shut down the conversation. But rather try to work with them and explain to them. If that's true, then there is no God at all. There is no supreme being. And if there is a supreme being, then there is only one who is supreme. And that's Jesus. He is Lord over all. And let it be a word of encouragement to us today. No matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how frightening this may be, our Jesus is not a parochial small God, lowercase g, who's bo- who ends at the border of our yard. He's God over my lot, but nothing else. No, he's God over all. He's God over Edom. Whatever Edom might be in your life. Let it be a hope for the future. If he is God over all, if he is Lord of all, then he is going to bring about the conclusion promised even in the book of Obadiah. That's why Paul goes on in Romans 8 and says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, the things of the future, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The message of Obadiah in the midst of the darkness of Israel and Judah's existence was that their God did not cease to have power at the border of their property, but that he was the God over Edom as well. 
And that's the message to us today. That our God's power is not limited to our lives. He is Lord of all. His authority extends to every realm, to every branch of every discipline, of everything, everywhere, all the time. And that we are encouraged. Because of that, we have great hope. Let's persist in that hope. Let's rejoice in that encouragement. Let's share that truth with everyone who will listen. Let's pray. Jesus, we lose sight of the fact that you are Lord over all. You are Yahweh, the one true God. One day, every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow. Give us the spirit and the willingness and the heart to do that now. Work in us a a, a desire to bow before you now and to boldly share you with all those around us and to live in the confidence we have that you are in control of all things. Help us to be renewed in the message of Obadiah. Let this small forgotten prophet Bring light in our darkness today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.